I would sit in these strategy meetings, these you know day-long off-sites with leadership teams that are clients, and you could tell, not based on the quality of the strategy or the talent in the room, whether they were gonna succeed or not based on how they got along and whether there was ego, whether there were difficult personalities, whether they were communicating clearly or not. And it was, for me, it was just such a strong predictor of the success of the team, of the organization. And, and you know, at that point, we had been talking about interpersonal relationships as work as sort of a bonus, right? Like they give you a good feeling when you're at work, but we didn't talk about them as material to the way work gets done and to performance and success. And that was really, for me, that's when the wheels started to turn of like, wait, this is, this is where the rubber meets the road, truly. This is the Visible Voices Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word about Bite Size Crime. Looking for a new true crime podcast to binge? Check out Bite Sized Crime. Each week, I bring you a new case to dissect. I focus on the facts, giving exposure to some of the lesser known stories in the true crime world. Subscribe to Bite Sized Crime on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Hi, listeners. Thanks so much for joining. And in today's episode, I'm speaking with Amy Gallo. Amy is the award-winning author of a book. It's entitled Getting Along, How to Work with Anyone, Even Difficult People. She's a contributing editor to Harvard Business Review, and she's written hundreds of articles there. Now, these articles are just a slam dunk. They're awesome. She herself is a workplace expert. She speaks on and writes on topics that are relevant to me and my industry and to you, audience, in your industry. These include gender, interpersonal dynamics, difficult conversations, feedback, and effective communication. Good stuff, right? Let's get to the conversation where I've asked Amy from where her interest in conflict comes. You know, like most of us, I think, in our careers, there wasn't really an aha moment as much as there was just a a lifelong interest in um, how relationships coalesce or form and how they fall apart. Um, And, you know, and being the child of divorced parents, I was very interested in that, that idea. Um, And also just always interested, you know, I I was, the kid on on the playground when yet someone yelled fight like i i would run over there like i was just always very intrigued in why people would fight right and what it took for them to 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 um you know what it took for those fights to resolve or for people to repair those relationships because that that really was what was most interesting to me also was of course we're going to fight it was clear to me from the beginning that there would be conflict in relationships, but how you handle them, how you address them, how you name them, how you move past them and repair was something I didn't fully understand. And I'm I'm still working to understand because I think, I think most of the, the, you know, experts in this field are still trying to understand when, what are the conditions under which that happens and how can you accelerate that? You know, and, and anyone who's watched my TEDx talk also knows that I, you know, some of the most painful moments in my life are when I felt like I couldn't name a conflict. I couldn't speak up about a conflict um, where I felt that it was more important in that moment to be, you know, quote unquote, nice rather than to 
defend myself or to speak up for what I felt was right. Mm -hmm. So when do you think you first realized you had a voice? And is there a time you would mark as the time that you started using your voice? Yeah. You know, I was a very outspoken kid in many ways. Like I it's I was not I was never shy. I I actually have a journal <laughs> from second grade where in the begin in the you know the first page it has asked for your name and I wrote Amy Gallo first female president of the United States. Like I had big ambitions for myself. I remember <laughs> I was always getting in trouble for speaking out to teachers and not and I what I don't think I was rude. I just felt like I had a lot to say. So I'm I'm not sure I felt like I um, ever found my voice. It, w it was always there. However, the the current version of my voice, I, I will say, when, after I wrote the HBR Guide to Dealing with Conflict, I remember at that, that point I was um, just writing. I wasn't doing any speaking. I wasn't doing any sort of public-facing work um, other than, than writing. And I remember the editor who worked on the guide with me said, you really need to figure out what you're going to charge for speaking fees. And I was like, what? No one's going to ask me to speak based on this book. And of course, within a few months, people were asking me to speak, um, which was, and I thought, mm, gosh, I'll do a few of these. I'll see how I feel. But this just, I'm a writer. This isn't what I want to do. And I remember actually the first paid speaking gig I did. Well, that's not true. It was actually my second paid speaking gig I did in New York. I remember walking out afterwards and being on the sidewalk and looking around, like looking for someone to tell, I just found my voice. Like it was, I just found what I want to do. And, and it was, it was, I had done a lot of speaking in front of groups um, as part of my management consulting work, but it never felt quite right. Whereas when I was speaking about something I cared so much about, and I felt I had deep knowledge about at that point, it just felt like it was coming through me. Like I didn't have to work. I, and it was, it was to a group of women in financial services who desperately needed these skills because they were, so many of them were in situations where they were on the receiving end of incivility or were being overlooked um, because of their gender, not because of their skills. And so to be able to share with them the tools and frameworks that they need to advocate for themselves, to get what they needed, it just it just felt like, oh, this is all coming together. And um, so I would say that's when I found my that's when I found my adult voice was that was at that moment. Beautiful, beautiful. And now if people want to hear your voice, you're a podcaster. So Women at Work podcast, uh, you joined as co-host, I believe, with Amy Bernstein in 2019. And tell us about that. So the podcast was started in 2008. I think it was 2018. Um, Sarah Green Carmichael, who is a, a former editor at HBR, um, Amy Bernstein, and Nicole Torres were the sort of founding co-hosts. We have this amazing producer, producer Amanda Kersey, who's been there since the beginning. Um, she really is the heart of that that podcast. Um, and it was started in the wake of Me Too, sort of like, well, how, how are we going to be talking about gender now that we're we're talking about sexual harassment and and the way women are treated in workplaces? But it quickly evolved into to much more than that. And you know, I when I was asked to join. 
it, it was so exciting. It's it's so funny. Speaking of voices, when you listen to the first, they they did this Meet Our New Co-Host episode. Sarah Green Carmichael was leaving HBR, so I was going to take her seat. And I listened to that episode, and I don't recognize my voice. I'm actually, my my throat is so constricted. I am so excited. Like, it's it sounds like nervousness, but I'm actually so excited to join this team. I had been a listener of the podcast. I loved Amy B., Sarah, Nicole, I loved what they were doing with the show. And I, it was, I said, I remember I can actually feel what it felt like to sit in that seat in the studio and, and, you know, start talking about these issues that really mattered to me. I actually had my high, in my high school, I had started a group called the Women's Issues Group. I'd actually had wanted to start a pro choice club and my, um, the the principal of school wouldn't allow it, but he said, you can talk about things that are important to women. And so I started this women's issues group. And I remember sitting in the studio, joining the women at work team and being like, this is it. This is the common. This is like eight, you know, 17 year old Amy would be so freaking excited that this is what I was doing with my days right now. Um, so yeah, so the, and the podcast does, we, we really try to um, we're, we're a little bit different than a lot of podcasts. It's not a straight up interview podcast in that we have one guest or, but we tried, we mix it up a lot. We talk to researchers who are looking at issues that address women and their experiences at work. We talk to listeners who've written into us about something they're experiencing and we try to make sense of that. And then oftentimes we do what we call a confab or a discussion afterwards where me and the other co-host or co-hosts, depending on the the current um, makeup of our of our team, talk about how what these issues mean to us and how we reflect on them. It's nice because as HBR editors, we get to see a lot of the research that's being done on these issues, and we can sort of bring that in. But we're also really sharing our personal experience as women in different generations, from different racial backgrounds, um, at different points in of our in our career. Um, it, it's honestly my favorite project that I get to work on. And, and it just, it feels like a privilege every time I get behind that mic. Yeah. I sampled a few episodes and really enjoyed all of them. Uh, and I thought they were relevant. One question I had, and you sort of answered this a little bit, and I'd love to do a little bit of a deeper dive is, you know, to what extent do you keep, uh, intersectionality on the radar and as part of the content in terms of the topics and in terms of the people that join you and bring their voice? Yeah, that's that has been a focus of the podcast in large part because of the way Amanda, our producer, schedules guests, thinks about the topic. It's been a focus since since the beginning. I won't say we're perfect at it. Um, we there's a we're the team is majority white, and currently we have no um, co-host who's a, a woman of color. Um, the so you know there's ways in which we fall down for sure, but it's something we think about particularly in terms of who we book about in terms of our experts, but then also topics. So this recent season, just this fall, we did an episode on on um, body size and weight bias at work. And we did try to some degree to talk about the intersectionality, particularly the way that weight can be racialized um, and th- the way that violence, um, you know, toward people, women of color in particular, when it comes to, to body size, is is much greater but but we all but i also feel like it it didn't fully get there like we scratched the surface there's a lot more to say and i feel like that's a lot with these episodes is you know we're under an hour we're trying to to get to 
um, the things that really matter to our listeners. And, and sometimes we don't fully deliver on the intersectionality in the way we'd like to, but it's certainly something we're thinking about every episode. We're talking about how does this, how does this play out here? How, what, what voices do we need to make sure are heard? And, and how might this affect listeners who are from different backgrounds from us? So we're here to really do some focused time also on your book, uh, Getting Along, How to Work with Anyone, Even Difficult People. I'll start by saying that you outline uh, eight archetypes, uh, eight types of people, uh, colleagues with whom we may work. And what I'd like to do is just name them. And I guess after each, can you just give a bit of a descriptor to the audience who may not be familiar? The passive aggressive colleague. Ah, one of my favorites, and actually the origin of the book. This was this was I. Whenever I do talks, I that I can always count the first, second, or third question will be about how to deal with someone passive aggressive at work. So this is someone who doesn't feel comfortable or isn't able to, for whatever reason, express their ideas, thoughts, opinions in a straightforward way. So they find indirect ways to do that, either through um, body language, uh, you know, through maybe mincing their words, not saying exactly what they think, but talking around it or through their actions. But so maybe promising to send an email that never shows up or agreeing to do one thing in a meeting and then doing the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. I really related to this one. In fact, I feel like I, I solved the puzzle of one colleague that I've been trying to figure out. Uh, the insecure boss. So the insecure boss, now there are many flavors of bad boss out there. The insecure boss is one I think that, that covers a lot of, of bosses um, and a lot of bad behavior, but that's someone who, for whatever reason, does not feel like they are competent or able to do what they need to do or have enough control. And so they end up um, you know, taking that out on you as the employee, either through micromanaging, maybe hoarding information, trying to prevent you from interacting with other departments or more senior people in the organization. You know, they're basically really, you know, hindering your progress in an effort to protect their ego. Mm -hmm. The pessimist. Ah, the pessimist, someone who just you know, sees negativity wherever they look. Um, you know, the pessimist is someone I think we find really frustrating. But if we're if we look carefully, they often are doing us um, they're doing us a favor in terms of pointing out risks. Um, I do think there's a lot of organizations that are marked by what a lot of people call toxic positivity, this sort of insistence like, oh, things are good, we'll be okay. When you when someone asks how you are, you're supposed to say great, right? And so the pessimist really counters that. And the problem is it, it's when it becomes a knee-jerk reaction and when it becomes, um, you know, it, it becomes an obstacle to getting things done because they're, they're so fixated on pointing out the risks and the downsides that they're not able to move forward. Yeah. The victim. So the victim is, the, is a type of pessimist. It's, one of the, it's the shortest archetype chapter um, because it, it shares a lot in common with the pessimist. It's someone who does see things that are going to go wrong, but they're really focused on things that are going wrong to them. And so they really don't have any agency. They don't take responsibility for mistakes or for things that go wrong. You know, they're just sort of constantly pointing out the ways in which the world seems unfair and unfair to them. Now, one thing about that, this archetype is a big caveat that 
you have to distinguish between someone who's quote unquote playing the victim and someone who is indeed a victim because there are lots of people who are on the receiving end of mistreatment or microaggressions or um, bias. And, and we have to be careful that we're not labeling someone unfairly as playing the victim when they are indeed actually experiencing those things at work. Yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out. The know-it-all. The know-it-all. This is the this is the one I identify with most, um, and I mean not that I've worked with a lot of know-it-alls, but it's the one I've acted like on occasion, um, or maybe more than more commonly than on occasion. If you if you ask people close to me, but this is the person who really feels like they get to dominate the conversation. They get to. Um, you know, share their opinions, oftentimes not backed up by any evidence or data. Um, you know, they're arrogant. They will interrupt. They'll, um, you know, they'll make you feel small simply because they they want to feel bigger. You know, you're probably recognizing a theme in many of these archetypes and, and certainly in the ones we're about to cover, which is that you're a lot of it's about defending ego. Mm -hmm. And really f people wanting to feel okay yeah. about themselves in the workplace. So some of these behaviors are adaptive in, in terms of just sort of trying to build up their own sense of self-assurance. Yeah. The tormentor. The tormentor is someone who you expect to be a mentor because they either you work closely with them or they, you share an identity factor with them. Maybe you're both women. Maybe you're both queer. And you expect that they're going to um, look out for you in the workplace or at least give you some insight on how it works. But then instead, they do the exact opposite and they tend to undermine you. They question your commitment to work. They... Um, you know, give you unnecessary tasks. They set set really high hurdles for you to overcome, um, which oftentimes you don't. And then they use that as evidence that you're not fit. You know, the big piece of this archetype that's important to think about is that there's something called social identity threat, which is that when you're from an underestimated group or a marginalized group, being affiliated with others from that group, you worry that that's going to actually hinder um, or impair your your reputation, um, and so you you know try to distance yourself from that, or even try to take those people down. And it's it, it's a, a rational response to that sense of threat, but being on the receiving end of it is horrible. This is one of the ones that I think is really really hard for people to deal with. Yeah. You use the term underestimated group. What do you mean by that? You know, this is actually a term I learned from my friend, Ruchika Tulshian, who um, is a DEI expert. She wrote a book called Inclusion on Purpose. Um, and it's what I mean is that the, sometimes these groups um, aren't we, we use terms like minority. Um, sometimes they're not minority. We think about gender, for example, women often aren't the minority in an organization or even in a population. And um, and yet it's that we don't um believe that they have the same potential as people from more quote-unquote dominant groups or overestimated groups we might even call some of them um, and so I'm really thinking rather than sort of size of the population more about how we think about that group's potential and so lots of lots of um, groups will fall into that category of underestimated two more archetypes the biased 
The biased coworker is someone who commits microaggressions. Um, those take lots of form. Um, many of us have been this archetype as well as been on the receiving end of, of their behavior. Um, and, and it's someone maybe unknowingly or maybe knowingly um, plays out that underestimation and either in the way they behave toward you or in what they say toward you. Yeah. And finally, the political operator. That is someone who cares about their career at all costs. So it's possible to play office politics, many of us do, in healthy ways. Um, however, the political operator is someone who really furthers their own agenda, their own reputation, their own career, often at the expense of others or with no concern for how their actions impact others. Yeah. So when I read the book um, and enjoyed it very much, identified so much, and I think it's relevant certainly to healthcare and medicine and to virtually every industry I can think of, um, I wondered to what extent is this autobiographical? Oh, that's a good question. So I do, and, I'm, and I have not been asked that question before. Um, so I do talk a lot in the book of my own experiences, both as someone who um, experience, has worked with people who fit into these archetypes. The book opens with a story of a, of a boss that I worked with who actually would fit multiple of the, of the archetypes. Um, and I do talk in the book about times I've done things, whether it's committed a microaggression or been the know-it-all in the room and made my colleagues feel small. Um, so it, there's, it's autobiographical in that I have experienced many, many of these things. Um, I've done some of these things. Um, and I've also had the privilege of, because of my role at HBR as a contributing editor and working on the articles you mentioned earlier, to talking to, you know, at this point, probably close to a thousand people uh, who've been in workplace situations like these. So it's not just my story, and, and it is slightly autobiographical in that way, but it's also the story of all those people who bravely told me, you know, what, what happened to them at work. And I sometimes had, a, had some advice for them, but this book was often, for me, a way to try to make sure I had advice to give people who did come to me and, and ask for help. Yeah. As I read, as I listened, uh, as you and I have spoken, um, it strikes me that perhaps you've had experiences with therapy and with coaching. And then flip side, I know certainly you coach. And often when you're in conversation, say on the podcasts or even in the book, where it seems you're serving a therapist role for people. And I'm wondering your, your, your thoughts regarding that. It's funny. We're recording this. I'm in my home studio and down one floor down is my husband who is an actual therapist, <laughs> um, seeing clients on zoom. So, <laughs> which is very funny. Um, but so the, yes, I have been in therapy quite a bit in my life. Um, I think the, the principles I've learned in therapy show up in this book over and over again. Um, I actually haven't worked with a coach, but I have, I am a coach. I have a small leadership coaching practice. Um, and I've, a lot of my leadership coaching is influenced by the work of Daniel Goleman and his work around emotional intelligence, which are also our principles that are deeply woven throughout, throughout this book. Um, and I do, it's, I, some of my colleagues at HBR joke that I'm their, 
the team therapists that if there's something going on at work, they'll come to me. And mostly I find that very flattering. Um, you know, I also don't want to overstep what my role is. And um, I want to be clear that there are some times that there are things you're going through, whether you're, you find yourself behaving like one of these archetypes or whether you're dealing with a difficult situation at work and in which you probably need more help than, than someone in my shoes can, can provide. Um, but it's, it's, you know, my experience in therapy in developing the self-awareness around why do I act that way I do? How does my own trauma or my own background influence the way I react to things or the way I interpret someone else's behavior? It's just been invaluable. And, you know, one of the big lessons you actually mentioned um, one of the articles, my early articles, how to how to work with someone you don't like. And that was, um, I interviewed Daniel Goleman for that article. And I remember him saying very clearly, and I had heard this before, but it was just it, at that moment, it was exactly what I needed to hear, which is that you're not going to change that other person. The thing you need to change is the, your thoughts, your reactions, and your behavior because that's really all you can control. And that is another major theme in this book is that at the end of the day, I wish I could tell you that your colleague is going to see the light. You're going to point out all the ways in which their behavior is is problematic for you and others, and, and that they'll just say, oh my gosh, thank you so much. I'm going to completely change. But the chances are very unlikely that it's going to go that way. It's much more of a messy process. Um, you know, I sometimes joke like my this book would be easier if it was just a prescription for therapy that you could hand to your co- colleague and say, go, you know, do, go do six years of therapy and then we'll talk this through again. Um, but, you know, it's I do feel like we have to know ourselves and we sometimes have to be the quote unquote adult in the room in order to do this work well. Yeah. As I read your book, there are a few books that came to mind that I've collected along the way. One is um, Women Don't Ask, Negotiation and the Gender Divide. Another is Thanks for the Feedback by our friend Sheila Heen, uh, Relatedly Difficult Conversations. Uh, And there's a book that I'm reading right now I shared with you entitled White Women, Everything You Already Know About Your Own Racism and How to Do Better. And when when I read your book, um, I couldn't help but think and wonder how much of this is from uh, white privilege, how much of this is from the white woman's gaze um, in that. So you and I shared, like, I grew up in a household where we should be nice. We shouldn't say not nice things. We shouldn't call attention. We shouldn't talk too much in class. We shouldn't be a know-it-all, all these things. And, you know, we're supposed to be nice we should be nice. We should always be nice. And, you know, to what extent does that cause us to be conflict, conflict avoidant? And, you know, how much of this is we, this message that we keep getting as women, you know, women fix yourself, like we need to fix ourselves for a man's world and um, male dominated industry. Yeah. Oh, gosh, there's so much in that question. It's, you know, I do think that I do think that there is a insistence that organizations be nice, that we be nice with our colleagues. And and I really put nice in air quotes because 
ultimately, I don't think it's kind. I don't think it's nice to not tell someone what you feel and to pretend like everything's okay. I mean, I think what ends up happening is we silence people. People can't speak up. They can't say what they're thinking and feeling. They can't add to the conversation because we have one way, which is this very polite way of interacting. And if you don't adhere to that, you're you know, considered aggressive or not a team player or not a cultural fit, right? Like you just, you end up getting ostracized. And I think in a, a lot of places the, that that way of behaving is very much a white way of behaving. And in many places, it's a very white women way of behaving. And it, it's, and I struggle with it though, because I also believe, and for anyone who's read the book, like you know, I do talk a lot about how to be kind to these people. Um, but kind doesn't mean not giving them feedback, not speaking up, not naming the bad behavior, not talking about the impact of the bad behavior, right? That to me, that is a nice thing to do is to help people become aware of the ways in which they're hurting or harming those around them so that they have the opportunity, if they choose it, if they take it, to change and and to do better. So, I, you know, I, all of that very much is is present present in the book, and yet it's also written from the perspective of a white of a white woman. So, there's many ways in which I'm sure I have my own blind spots about things I'm recommending and how they might land um, from people from different backgrounds. And you know, I I love 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 doing talks and workshops and just hearing from people who have read the book or who are engaging with the frameworks or tools and saying, this would never work here. You have no idea. Like this just couldn't work. Like that's my, honestly, that's my favorite question <laughs> in the Q and A when someone's like, yeah, you missed the mark. Right. And then it's like, oh, great. Okay. How, what else, what else, what would work? What do you find helps? What's standing in the way? And just sort of talking that through about how do we make this, these tools and these frameworks as relevant and effective for as many people as possible. The Risa Wrap-Up. Well, I loved this conversation and deeply appreciative to Amy for making the time to speak with me. And a lot of articles on which Amy has focused, what she's written about, what she's focused on, difficult conversations, feedback, interpersonal communication, conflict, all are of interest to me because You've heard me say this before, no matter what your industry, people are people, leadership is leadership. And navigating these relationships, the better we are at them, the better we can have contentment and joy in the workplace and succeed in the workplace. That's it for this week, audience. See you next time. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare, equity, and current trends. Our production team includes Stacey Gitlin, Dr. Giuliano Deporto, and me, Dr. Risa E. Lewis. Please find me on social media at Risa E. Lewis and through the website, thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us. Share the podcast with a friend today. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued.